Our New Testament lesson is Colossians chapter 3. During the sermon, we'll be focusing particularly on verses 5 to 14. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his practices and have put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all, and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, as your word is read and sung among us, it dwells in us. Now anoint the preaching of your word that indeed our hearts would receive the word and would bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Lord, help us to understand what it means to be in Christ, to be alive in him, and what our response is to be of faithful living before you and in the power of the risen Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, one of the most profound things that a pastor ever said to me over 30 years ago now was this. Here's the definition of the Christian life. The Christian life is becoming more and more what you already are. Let me say it again. The Christian life is about becoming more and more what you already are. It's not about becoming something that you're not. Another way of saying this is that the Christian life is driven by gospel obedience. In other words, we obey out of what God has done for us, not in order to achieve something from God, not in order to earn something from God, not in order to somehow put God in our debt through our faithful obedience, but because God has done everything necessary 
to bring us to himself in terms of Colossians chapter one. He is the one who has qualified us for an inheritance with the saints in light, which is another way of saying eternal life. He is the one who has done that through the work of his son. And therefore we must, as our thankful response, begin to live in a new way. You know, so much of what Paul says in this passage, he put it this way in Romans chapter 6, how can we who died to sin live in it any longer? The Christian life is about becoming more and more what you already are. And if you look at the beginning of this chapter, and if you don't remember, go back and listen to my sermon that I preached here back in June, I think it was, on, on Colossians 3, 1 to 4. What you are is you are dead to sin in the world and you are raised. You are already seated with Christ in heavenly places. You may not feel like it. It may not look like it in terms of your outward appearance as your outer man is continuing to fade away. But it's true. It's true. So again, let's just remind ourselves what the opening paragraph. In the opening paragraph, it's so important, it's so fundamental, it's so significant. In fact, you know, if you look at the book of Colossians, it's essentially the very center passage of the book. And it's pointing back to chapter 2 and saying, don't practice this false religion. You've died to that world. You've died to these other claims that people make of how to know God and the transcendent. But instead, you're alive to God in Christ. And so chapter 3, here's what you are supposed to do. Now, first of all, he puts it negatively in verses 5 to 10. Put to death what is earthly in you. And the first thing we want to say about this is when he says put to death what is earthly in you, he's not saying what is physical in you, what is material in you. God created you with a body. God expects you to use that body and not neglect that body or ignore that body for his glory in the various vocations that he gives to you. No, as you look at what he defines as what is earthly, it's not things that are physical. It is things that are sinful. It is things that are wicked. It is things that are contrary to the law of God. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, things that will bring the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not going to come on people because they have a body. It's because of what they do with their bodies. It's not because they have a mind. It's because of what they do with their minds. It's not because they have desires. It's because their desires are often inordinate and we desire the wrong things, or we desire good things too much, and therefore they become coveting, which Paul says is nothing less than idolatry because it's putting something else in the place that God uh, is to be. Now, the fact that it says put to death, you know, John Owen famously said, Make mortification, that's a fancy word that means put to death, make mortification your daily business, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. This takes effort. 
And the fact that it's described as putting to death means that it can be difficult. It can be hard. You know, if you've been enslaved to certain patterns of sin that just came very easily to you, it may be very hard to break those patterns, even though you're raised with Christ. There can be struggles. I'm not denying that. But the Christian life takes effort, and it is an effort that flows from an energy that is nothing less than resurrection energy. You know, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1, the same power by which God raised Christ from the dead, and believe me, that's power, because he was raised never to die again. The same power by which he raised Christ from the dead is at work in you who believe. You have access to nothing less than the power of heaven, the power of the resurrected Christ, with whom you are seated in heavenly places, even now, flowing into your life to be able to say no. No to anger. No to immorality. And so when you choose to look at porn, when you choose to walk out on your spouse, you're denying the very purpose for which God sent His Son. The Son of God was sent into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Not just to forgive us for our sins, though that is true, and there's always forgiveness. Don't ever doubt it, that no matter how bad you mess up, no matter how much you may still continue to live in these things, there is forgiveness, but there's also freedom. There's also formation. There's also being taken, as Paul says, out of the old man and all of his practices and all of his wickedness and all of his disobedience and being grafted into the new man in which there is life, in which there is holiness, in which there is righteousness. And again, that's not just for the future as much as we're in a process, as much as we're on the way, but it is for today. It is for now. Everything Paul says here at the opening of chapter 3 is in the past tense. You have died. You have been raised. You are seated. Christ is your life. It's not just that He will be your life. He is your life. And therefore, you have power. You have resources. You have an agenda. And it's really important that we do this. You know, Paul says that because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of, you know, God doesn't take these things lightly. God doesn't just wink at these things. God doesn't just say, oh, that's, that's no big deal. I, I know you couldn't help yourself. And when we think about it, when we compare this passage like with Romans 1, that's not just a wrath that's going to be poured out on the last day, which of course that's true too. But when we look about at the way these things destroy relationships, right? What does immorality lead to? Children born out of wedlock, not being raised in a stable home, children murdered in the womb because of easy access to abortion, children put in, in foster care where they often bounce from house to house, marriages that are supposed to be a place for a man and woman to enjoy companionship and fellowship for a lifetime are broken up and torn apart because of immorality and all sorts of other issues. And, and that's a manifestation of the wrath of God 
even now in history. You know, why, why is there war in the Middle East? Why is there war in Eastern Europe? Why is there war? You know, it's ways that God, in a sense, is saying, the way you're going is the wrong way. And there's an even worse judgment to come if you don't repent. And this was our world, verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. So again, you know, if you're engaged in the battle, if you're putting to death, it's not because you're better than the next guy. Okay? If you're saying no to immorality and all the craziness that's now being endorsed as, you know, progress and, and diversity and acceptance, okay? You know, they, they are trapped in those things. They are lost in those things. They need our help. They don't just need our, our anger. You know, I mean, we are right to be upset about these things and to speak out against them. But that's where we would be, you know, the famous saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. But for the grace of God, that's where we would be as well. So again, don't, don't uh, the very fact that you need to be put to death, right, <laughs> means that you deserve the wrath of God. And it's only the mercy of God. It's only the grace of God. It's only the rescue of God in His Son that you can be freed to begin to live in a new way. Now that new way is described here as, and you'll notice that I, I changed the wording. There's a footnote in the ESV. It's literally putting off the old man and putting on the new, right? And I don't know if it's because of our modern age that we don't like to say man because that's too chauvinistic or whatever but that's really important language right because it's there's so much in this passage putting off the old man um, being renewed in the image of its creator that's pointing us right back to the very opening chapters of scripture being pointed right back to the first man adam and his and his bride eve and the fact that he was our covenant head and in Adam all die. But in Christ, the last Adam, the new man, we are being liberated, we are being renewed, we are being recreated, we're being taken out of that old man as if it's a patch of, of bad, rancid, putrid clothing that's being taken off. And now we are being clothed with the new man, with the last Adam, in whom there is life. But but that life involves a putting to death, okay? That's what Paul is trying to say here. And not only do we have to deal with immorality and intense uh, desires that are sinful, we also have to deal with anger, with wrath, with malice, with even our very speech, with the fact that we are not to be deceptive, The Christian life is about becoming more and more what you are in Christ. It's about living less and less like old Adam and his practices, you know, the way he tries to hide himself from God, the way he tries to blame his wife for what's going on, the way his son gets jealous and ends up murdering his brother, the way his descendants... <coughs> 
engage in all kinds of unfaithful practices, the, the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, which brings the wrath of God and a destruction upon the world. All those ways have to be put off. All of them. You know, and again, some of that may come easier to us based on our upbringing, based on our personality, based on our background, but all of it needs to be addressed. Okay, we never have a right to say, well, I'm dealing pretty well with the immorality, so the lying's not such a big deal. You know, I'm dealing pretty well with the intense, passionate desire, so it's not a big deal if I, you know, tell you a fib every once in a while. It's a comprehensive transformation that is happening. And so, even though some of it may come easier, all of it needs to be addressed. And again, part of the reason why it's important to understand this language about old man and new man is we're not just talking about turning over a new leaf. You know, we're not just take, you know, taking the four worst habits about me and, and, and bringing in the, the, the four good ones or the seven steps to the good life or whatever, whatever latest self-help book it is that's out there, okay? We're talking about discipleship. We're talking about transformation. We're talking about an ongoing process of putting to death and bringing to life, becoming more and more what we are in Christ. Because, you know, Paul puts it this way in, in Romans chapter 8. God has done all of these things. He's predestined us to these things. He's justified us. He's brought us. He's called us into fellowship with himself through his son so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. Brethren that are becoming more and more like Him. That are speaking like Him. That are thinking like Him. And therefore are beginning more and more to act like Him. And one of the interesting things about this is that this new humanity is not going to be so divided <clears throat> as the old humanity was. You know, I mean, think about how all the, the local tribes, right? You just think about Israel and the lands around it, right? The Moabites had their God, Chemosh. The Edomites had their God. The Ammonites had their God. The Babylonians had Marduk and, and all of their gods, right? And that reinforced the fact that the Babylonians were over there, the Moabites were over there, the Edomites, right? There was, there was no way for there to be true unity, for there to be true humanity um, that, is, that is united. But what does Paul say here? In this new man, there is not Greek and Jew. There is not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Now, now again, in our current context, Paul's not saying, you know, <clears throat> you better get your quota of barbarians in your church. Okay, you better get your quota of slaves in your church. Okay, he's not saying that we need to create this, this kind of artificial diversity, right? But what he is saying is, whoever walks through that door, if they're a follower of Jesus, doesn't matter what they look like, doesn't matter where they come from, doesn't matter what language they speak, they're welcome. They're welcome here. 
Okay? The waters of baptism washes away any reason that we might hold them outside the door. Okay? They have access to the living God, and so they must share access to the table with us. And we need to, you know, and, 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 and again, that's not always easy, right? You know, somebody comes in who doesn't speak your language, maybe you got to work on getting a translator, okay? That takes time. You know, somebody comes from a very different background than you, um, you know, it, take, it, take, it takes effort to work on how are we going to minister to this person? How are we going to welcome them into our midst? How are we going to make sure that they've got a place to serve and that they're not treated like a second-class citizen because they don't look like us or they don't dress like us or they don't smell like us? Red and yellow, black and white, they are rescued in His Son. I know that doesn't rhyme very well, but that's a better way of saying what we're talking about. Okay? It's a better way of saying what we're talking about. And then Paul continues to develop this more positive view. What is it? So here, you know, putting off anger, malice, wrath, immorality, covetousness. Now he starts to talk about putting on. And he does it by identifying God's people, by identifying you with some particular adjectives. Put on then as God's chosen ones, as His holy ones, as His beloved ones. Now, let me first of all read... Oh, elect ones. Let me read a quote for you. Elect, I take to mean set apart. God has chosen you to Himself, has sanctified you and received you into His love on this condition that you be merciful, compassionate, etc. To no purpose does the man that has not these excellencies, mercy, compassion, boast that he is holy and beloved to God. To no purpose does he reckon himself among the number of believers. Now, this commentator is talking about what we might call conditional election. And so you might think, well, that must be John Wesley. Brothers and sisters, that's John Calvin. Calvin is recognizing that terms like elect don't always refer to the way we use that term in Westminster Confession chapter 3 individuals elected unto salvation. No, these are Israel terms. This is Israel language. As I was sharing in the Sunday school class, just, just listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 7. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. You see what Paul's doing? He's taking this Israel language and saying that because you Gentiles are in Israel's Messiah, 
Now that you're in the reality of the new covenant that has come in Christ, everything that applied to Israel as the holy, chosen, loved people of God now is true in an even greater way for you who are in the Messiah, who are in Christ Jesus. And so this is, this is a corporate term that is talking about your identity as the people of God. And since you are these people of God, since you have access to this resurrection power, you not only need to put to death, but you need to put on having been clothed in nothing less than Christ himself. My pastor, he used to quote his father. His father would often say to him, you can't curse the darkness, you got to light a candle. Okay? So yes, we have to deal with our darkness. We have to say no to it. But I'll tell you, the easiest way to put off is to continue putting on. Okay? What's the way to deal with anger? Become more compassionate and loving. What's today to deal with insatiable lust? Become more compassionate and caring so that you're not driven by your own desires and your own lusts, but you're thinking about others ahead of yourself. The way to deal with putting off and putting to death and unclothing the old man is to continue to put on and to dwell in all the goodness that we have in our Savior, all the goodness that we find in Christ. Reflecting upon who He is. I mean, you know, just think about it. You know, it's funny. How much of the New Testament is taken up with a three and a half year period of one man's life? I'm talking about the Gospels. You know, why is it that liturgies of, mo of many churches every week you read from the Gospels? Because that's where we see what our Savior was like. We see, you know, these attributes that Paul is commending to us here in verse 12. Um, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. That's Jesus, right? I could show you in various places of Scripture how all of these attributes are attributes of Christ Himself. And so what Paul is saying is, as you've been clothed in Christ, as you've been raised with Christ, as you're seated in Christ, become like Christ. Learn from Him. Live in Him. Practice who He is. We could put verses 12 to 14 together this way. Put on, put up, and put over. Okay? Put on these attributes, which are at attributes of Christ Himself. Put up with each other. And put over them love. So we've already spoken about putting on a little bit. But again, let's just think about not only other passages we've looked at, but again, let's remind ourselves what it says in verse 4. Christ who is your life. Christ, again, this isn't something that you have to gin up this isn't something that you have to create. This is something that God has given to you 
in the gospel. God has given to you in his son. God has given to you by grace. God has given to you as you receive by faith. Christ is your life. Live it. Or maybe we could say live him. Okay? <clears throat> and so in the place where there is anger, let us remember Christ's compassion. In the place where there is lust, let us remember Christ's submission to his Father's will. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. What's your food? What's, what's driving you? What, what satisfies your appetites? Is it just material food? Or is it Christ Himself, the one in whom you have been brought to life? Where there is impatience and overbearing, let us remember our Savior who was offered the kingdoms of the world. You know, just... just all you got to do is just, just bow down to me a little bit, Jesus, and I'll give it to you all. That was the road of impatience. That was the road of snatching at the fruit instead of patiently waiting for God. Patiently waiting even to the point of suffering an ignominious death on an instrument of Roman torture. Waiting upon God to finally vindicate him. Waiting upon God to finally seat him at his right hand. And then to receive all authority. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And declare that he, the one who waited, the one who surrendered, the one who gave it up all and received it all back, that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We also must put up with each other. Bearing with one another, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And this is so important that Paul repeats it. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now again, this is a reminder to us that as grand as this vision is, as, as comprehensive and extensive as this vision is, it's a process. And not only are you in process, but I'm in process. And I might hurt you along the way in the process because I'm still struggling with my anger. I'm still struggling with impatience. I'm not excused from it. I must always repent of it. I must always put it to death. But as the Heidelberg Catechism says, we have but the small beginnings of the new obedience. And so this is reminding to us that even though there's this, there's this vast resource, there's this vast agenda, there's a call to action Yet we're always a people on the way. And so we need to bear with one another. We need to be patient with one another. And, and I want you to think about this. You know, isn't it interesting that Paul, in all of this discussion of what it means to seek the things above, right? That, that's what this whole context is. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above. 
that he's not talking about so much, okay, don't get me wrong here, he's not talking about like having five-hour quiet times. He's not talking about praying for two hours a day. Not that I would discourage you from doing that, okay? He's talking about my relationship with you and your relationship with me. He's talking about your relationship with your kids at the dinner table the next day. Now, why is that? Because God has made us in His image. He has redeemed us to be restored to that image, and that image is a relational image. In the beginning, He made Him in His image. In the image of God, He created Him. Male and female, He created them. God has made the world in such a way that he binds himself to humanity that the way he, we treat each other, God says, is the way we treat him. Right? Matthew 25, as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've what? You've done it to me. How do we know that we love God and keep his commandments? Because we love the brethren. How do we know that we love the brethren? Because we love God and keep his commandments. 1 John. Okay? There's this nexus, there's this matrix, okay, in which God has so bound himself to humanity that as he himself lives in a fellowship of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's created us for relationship. The old man does all these things to destroy these relationships. Christ has come as the last Adam and the new man to restore us in such a way and so if we want to work on pleasing God, if we want to work on serving God, work on your relationships with each other. Work on confessing sin so that you can forgive each other. Work on trying to build relationships. You know, he's going to go on to say in chapter 4, even with those who are outsiders. But it starts from, from within, Right? We are those chosen people. We are those beloved people. We are those, and so we're to, yes, we're to teach each other. You know, we're to call each other to account, but we're also to be compassionate toward one another, kind, humble before each other, encouraging each other, building each other up so that we can continue to make progress in this life that God has called us to. And that's why he not only says that we have to be forgiving each other and bearing with one another. You know, again, <laughs> you know, we're God's people. We're a holy people. But, you know, in many ways, we're still a broken people. You know, we're still people who live in a fallen world as fallen people with other fallen people. Okay, there's all kinds of ways that we're going to need to bear with one another in the journey. And that's why he says in verse 14, above all these things are put over, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And again, if you think that this is just some kind of ooey gooey, you know, what, whatever the latest pop song is that talks about love, 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 love. 
Um, <clears throat> you know, he's going to spell out toward the end of the chapter how husbands and wives are supposed to relate to each other, how parents and children are supposed to relate to each other, how slaves and masters, okay? So he, he's not going to leave us in the dark, okay? Or you think about our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 13, right? You know, love is not irritable. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love hopes all things. You know, the Bible gives us, or, or, or again, even more practically, you know, Leviticus 19, love means, you know, you have a little, little left over to share with the poor. Okay? Love means you don't, you don't testify falsely against your neighbor in court whether that's a civil court or a criminal court or an ecclesiastical court, okay? You know, there's, there's, there's very practical ways, you know, maybe it's holding the door open for somebody. Maybe it's dropping off a meal for somebody when, when, when their wife is giving birth, okay? Or they're sick, okay? Or they're between jobs, okay? Very, very tangible, practical ways. You know, Paul said in the previous chapter that in Christ, our head, we are knit together, okay? We are, we are one body. And what Paul is trying to say here is that that reality needs to become manifested in such a way that we're, we practice acts of kindness toward each other, acts of love, acts of mercy, so that you know, what becomes kind of an intellectual thing, it, it becomes more experiential. You know, I become knit to you because I've done things together with you. <laughs> you know, I've, I've lived life with you. I've sat around a table with you. I've, I've shared the joy of seeing your children born or, you know, seeing your children in the hospital. And, I, and I've, I've, I've cared for you. I've, I've prayed for you. I've, I've lived life with you. Okay, it's more than just kind of a, you know, an intellectual, yeah, there it is, but it's actually a practical, experiential, lived out thing as we live in community. And part of what that means is, you know, we can't just see each other for an hour on Sunday mornings, as important as this is for letting the word of Christ dwell richly among us and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, right? It also means that we need to, you know, rub shoulders out there, whether it's in, in the job or at play or around the dinner table, okay? Real practical ways that we experience life together so that we have the opportunities to show compassion to each other. You know, if I'm not spending time with you during the week, I'm not going to need to forgive you because you're, you're hardly ever going to have time to sin against me if it's just here on a Sunday morning, right? Think about it. It's only if we're living life together as the people of God that we're going to have those times that we're going to rub off each other the wrong way, and we will have to forgive each other. We will have to bear with each other in our foibles. <clears throat> so, brothers and sisters, this is, again, it's, it's transformative. It's, it's the new creation breaking into the old world, and yet... It comes down to, you know, do I turn the oven on to 450 so I can bake chicken for my neighbor? Okay? Right? 
that can be a manifestation of nothing less than the resurrection power of God, which transforms me from being selfish and keeping it all for myself or making the time to do it for somebody else. And so you're not an Adam. Put those things to death. You're alive in Christ. The Christian life is becoming more and more what you already are in Christ, the last Adam and the new man. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.